I think I did a double take to make sure I, what I was seeing was what I was seeing. But I remember being very surprised uh, the first time that I saw a, an Amish man um, driving his, his cart being pulled by a horse. I was a youth intern in Wichita, Kansas, and there are, what I quickly found out is there are a couple of Amish communities in and around Wichita. But it was the first time, yes, that I was the first time I'd seen um, a horse on a major uh, road. Now, you might be surprised because I'm from Oklahoma originally, but it's not normal, okay? So <laughs> then I moved to Texas, uh, out in central Texas, and, and we saw that more often there than, than we did even in Oklahoma or Kansas. But uh, what you quickly figured out, what I quickly figured out living in Wichita is there was a couple of Amish communities, and they lived in a completely a different way uh, than you and I live. Uh, there are certain things that, that we take part in or enjoy that they just don't use. Which you, if you do any kind of quick Google search, you'll figure out that there's, there's more than just the two or three in Kansas, but there's, they're kind of all over the country. And there's one in and around uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And, you know, they don't use electricity. They don't use cars. Uh, they do use a, a couple of more modern farming techniques, but otherwise they're pretty much living like it was 200 years ago. They even have a milkman. And in this community, uh, they had a milkman, a regular guy who came and every day brought the milk. Only one day, instead of bringing milk, he decided to bring a death and destruction with him as well. He uh, came and he opened fire on their schoolhouse before turning the gun on himself. And he uh, shot 10 girls in the schoolhouse, killing five. Now, this is a horrific tragedy that shook that community, the community that was so tight-knit and separate, but was now thrust into the national news. And the story lasted a bit of time, not because of how horrific it was, but because of the response of the community. See, the community there is, is a Christian community that has deep Christian convictions and how they live life and even how they choose to respond in terrible tragedies. Every year they would have a huge fundraiser that would help certain parts of their community, but that year they decided that their fundraiser would go to support the family that came and brought death and destruction to their community. He left behind a wife and a couple of kids and all of their money that they raised went to his family. It was a beautiful example of forgiveness and grace, even at a very difficult time. And one of their leaders was interviewed, and one of the quotes he gave read like this, we have to forgive. Jesus forgave us of our sins. How can we expect forgiveness if we can't give it? See, even in the most difficult of circumstances, church, we are called to be people of forgiveness. I want to welcome you again to Cross Point. Today we're going to talk about forgiveness. This, this is a, that is an aspect of who we want to be as a family of God here. Bobby gave a great intro to who we are. If you're new here to Cross, we're so glad you're here to, to worship with us today. And we hope that you've seen a glimpse of the kind of community we are. We want to be one of welcoming. We want to be a family here. We also want to be a place of forgiving. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. 
As Luke asked you earlier, I hope you grabbed a bulletin or if you are a regular member here, I hope you've downloaded our Crosspoint app. We have lots of things going on, lots of details in there and ways for you to be involved. Families, if you haven't yet signed up for our family retreat, I don't know what you're waiting on, but this is going to be a great moment that you get out of town, that you spend some time together. And who knows, who knows what it will take to have a family uh, that is close-knit, that will help your kids walk in the way of the Lord. But I know this. I know that the family retreat is not going to hurt. And so sign up today and join us for the family retreat. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're in the very middle of a series on the book of Jonah today. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn over to Jonah. If you're looking for it, start at the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. You can go back about seven uh, books. That, that might be the way you need to find it. That's how I found it. So uh, do that. Go back there. Uh, but this has been a very enlightening series, and I hope that you've been enmeshed in this book. It's like, as I told you at the front end, it's only about one page in my Bible. It doesn't take long to read. It's under 50 verses. Spend some time reading it. It brings some challenges because if you've been in church, you know the story. Uh, it's the guy who was swallowed by a fish for three days. But the story doesn't start there, and the story doesn't end there. In Jonah chapter 1, God calls Jonah, and he says, rise up and go to Nineveh. Jonah does rise, but instead of going to Nineveh, he goes in the opposite direction, and he boards a boat that's setting sail for the opposite side of the world, for the very ends of the earth. That's where Jonah's trying to go. But what he quickly finds out is that you cannot run from God. And so God brings up a big storm that essentially halts the boat, and they figure out that Jonah is the cause, and so Jonah goes overboard. And last week, you talked about how Jonah gets swallowed by a fish, and for three days he's in this belly of the fish. Now, that might sound like punishment, but it also sounds like salvation, because there's a good chance that Jonah doesn't make it to dry land without the fish. Now, kids, one thing that Jonah forgot when he got swallowed by the fish is he didn't bring a book. He didn't bring an extra battery for his iPhone, and so for three days, it's just this fish, Jonah, and God. Can you imagine three days uh, with just the inside of a fish to talk to. I know that this, this side of the room is starting to sweat because that's, you know, that, that would be difficult. And it's in the belly of the fish that Jonah's heart starts to soften. And Jonah chapter 2 records a prayer that he offers God while in the belly of the fish. And the fish, I kind of view it as a timeout. It's a moment that that Jonah had strayed from God. He'd been disobedient. He'd been rebellious. And God brought him a time out, a place to go to think about who he wants to be and who he wants to follow. Who is it that you want to run towards? There's been times in your life that God gives you the consequence. He gives you the thing that you've been asking for. And it serves as a time out. And it's a moment that, that we need some time. As I said in Jonah chapter 2, we have this recording of a prayer from Jonah. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were in the belly of the fish hoping to survive, hoping to get out of the fish, my prayer might look pretty desperate. Uh, please, you know, get me out of here. I will do anything. We've prayed that prayer, right? A lot of times it's, we want our sports team to win. So God, I will do anything if I could just get out of here. But the prayer that we have from Jonah is a great example of what it looks like to turn your heart back to God. A great example of repentance. As I said, his heart softens. And at the end, he says, I know that salvation comes only from you. And what I have vowed, I will do. Jonah remembers who he is called to be. 
And chapter 2 ends with him being spit up on dry, dry ground. This is how Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 starts. All the text will be on the screen today if you don't have it there in front of you. Verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So I want to stop right there for a second. God's giving him a second chance. This is Jonah's second attempt at the same thing. At the, at the beginning of the book, this is the command that God gives Jonah. Go to the city of Nineveh and give them the message that I give you. Now, I know when you're younger, it's really cool to say, like, no regrets, you know. Just live how I want to live, YOLO. All of those kinds of <laughs> dumb things. Um, but if you've lived a little bit, don't you know that, don't you wish there were times you could do it over again? That if you knew then what you know now, wouldn't you want to live differently? You'd want to make a different decision. And here Jonah gets that chance. He gets the chance that you and I long for and hope for. God gives him the exact same command. He's given him this command. He rebelled. He disobeyed. He took his punishment. And now God's saying, I'll give you another chance. You prayed a lot of words. You said a lot of things. And let's see how you respond if you get a second chance. God, what we see here is he's not discarding his mission and he's not discarding Jonah. Verse three, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So Jonah does what he says he's going to do. His heart has changed. What he has vowed he is going to do. He takes the chance. God gives him a second chance and he takes it. He does what we all hope our kids do. We hope our kids, in a moment of disobedience, we hope they learn in the next time that they'll do it. Jonah does it. He does what God has asked. But it's really interesting how the writer of the book gives us these details. See, Jonah goes... He goes to the city, he proclaims the message, but you know, the writer could have told us about the size of the city in any different way. The writer could have said how many people live in this city. You know, Dallas is a great city. Two million people live here. We don't typically say Dallas is a big city. It takes about uh, 35 minutes to drive through or sometimes three hours, but that's not how we describe it. In chapter four, you're going to find out how many people live in Nineveh. But in chapter 3, the writer wants you to know how long it takes to get through. It takes three days. How much does Jonah go through the city? The writer tells us he goes into it one day. You know, if you've ever been on a road trip with some kids, you know that after a certain amount of time, they kind of get, uh, starting to get restless, need to stretch their legs a bit. And, and my kids sometimes, you know, after a certain amount of time, they just start kind of picking on each other. And of course, you know, you flip down the mirror and you say, now listen here, you do not touch each other. And if maybe you have an oldest, like I was an oldest, and that puts his hand right here on his brother, you know, I'm not touching him. I am not touching him. And if I can help it, I'm going to do this. Don't even move. Because I'm not touching you. You better not touch me. And of course, I, know, I remember my mom looking in the back and being like, okay, that's, that's not what I meant. And technically, I was doing exactly what she asked. Technically, I was doing the exact thing she told me not to do. Don't touch your brother. It's the spirit of the law. It's the spirit of the rule that I would be missing. That's kind of like what Jonah's doing here. God says, go to Nineveh, proclaim this message. And I think what God wants from Jonah is he wants to see, I want to save those people. I love those people in Nineveh, 
And you should too. But what we get from Jonah is we get, you know what? I'll go to Nineveh. I'll go in a day. I'll proclaim this message. And in the Hebrew, for 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It only takes five words. That may have been exactly what God asked him. Or Jonah may be cutting it short. I think the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that Jonah isn't all in. Jonah is doing the bare minimum. Technically, he's following what God has said, but his heart doesn't seem to be in it. However, look at how the people of Nineveh respond. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I love what the king says here. He said, who knows? God may yet relent. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know if God will relent from his anger, but he knows what he's heard. And he said, you know what? I'm going to do everything in my power to follow what God says. There is no other way to read this passage and to see that the Ninevites have come to faith. Nineveh hears the word of the Lord. They know it and believe it to be true. And so they put into action what they hear. That's what it means to come to faith. Our prayer for you is that you've done the same thing. You hear the word of the Lord, you believe it to be true, and your actions follow suit. That is faith. And Nineveh here gives an example to Jonah and to the readers of of this book what it looks like to come to faith. You hear God's word, you believe it to be true, and you do what it says. It's faith because they don't know what's going to happen. Who knows, he said, God may yet relent. He doesn't know. That's where the faith comes in. I love how the king responds in particularly in here. He gives up all symbols of his own authority. The writer here has been trying to make clear certain things. This word arise keeps coming up. And in this passage, it says the king rose from his throne and he gets off the throne. The king gives up all symbols of his own authority. He leaves the throne and he goes and sits in the dust. He takes off his royal robes and he puts on sackcloth like anything else. It's as if the king knows there can only be one king. And that is the God of heaven and earth. See, church, there can only be one king. And God's not going to fight for the throne. He's not going to fight you for the throne of your heart, the throne of your life. And as long as we choose to sit on it, God is not going to to be your king. You can only serve one master. And God will be the king. The only thing that you can do in response to your own sin, to your own disobedience, is to get off the throne, to put a knee in the dust, and to ask for forgiveness, to turn in repentance. See, Nineveh has done wrong. They are worthy of destruction. They have earned their being overthrown. They've done evil. They've been wicked. However, they repent and God sees. Verse 10, 
When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God is a God who is watching. He's a God who is looking for your hearts to turn to him. He's a God that's willing and open to seeing your heart turn back to him. See, the definition that we use as a prophet is a prophet reveals who God is and what God does. And Jonah reveals that God is a God who accepts your repentance. He's a God that's full of mercy and grace and ready to forgive. This is who our God is. He's a God of second chances. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. He's, his desire is for you to turn back to him, it's to come home. See, what the writer of Jonah so masterfully lays out is that there, there is a mirroring here of the text, that Jonah disobeys. Jonah rebels against God, but he turns back, and God gives him a second chance. Nineveh has been wicked. Nineveh is evil, but they turn towards God. They say all the right things, all the right words, and God says, God says I'm going to give you a second chance. God like Nineveh, turns away from his anger and turns toward his people in Nineveh. And it's worth asking here at the end of chapter 3, stepping back and asking, who is this message for? Who is the book of Jonah for? See, at some point, someone thought it worthy of writing down so that this lesson would live on. The book of Jonah is not for Nineveh. The prophet Jonah, he himself, he is for Nineveh. But the book wasn't written down for them. No, the book was written down for Israel. This was a book that someone said, there is a lesson here that we cannot forget. The book, the story is for Israel. The story is for all God's people. The story is for us. It's as if the writer knew that there's going to be times that we forget who God is. That God is a God of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy. This is who our God is. This is our lesson. If a prophet reveals who God is and what God does, then Jonah reveals that God is forgiving. God is full of mercy and grace, and God wants all of his creation to come home. And as people who follow God, our example is to follow, the example we're given is to follow him. I remember in college having a professor that you wouldn't ever say was, was mad, not even mean, but he certainly wasn't happy. You know, you've met those people that almost always wake up on the wrong side of the bed. He was known for short interactions and even shorter emails. Every interaction you had with him was difficult. And you would ask a pretty straightforward question, you thought, and you would walk away confused and maybe that you had done something wrong every single time. And I remember halfway through the semester being sick and needing to miss class. One, I didn't have the strength for it. And two, I didn't want to get anyone sick. And I remember going to write an email and spending time because I I wanted to get it right for this professor that always seemed upset. And so I remember spending time on this email explaining that, you know, I don't think I have the energy and I don't want to get anyone else sick. And so uh, I hope it's okay, but I'm going to, I'm not going to be in class and whatever I need to make up, I'll make up. And I got a pretty, I got a reply pretty quickly. And he just said, fine. So I remember closing the email and opening it back up. Maybe it all didn't load or something. Uh, maybe, maybe he hit send too fast and there's another email coming. And, and I, you know, I read all my words again and his was fine. 
And I was like, oh man, I am in trouble now. I, I should have gone. I've made the wrong uh, decision here. I thought I was in big trouble. And I remember showing up for class the next time and kind of keeping my head low, you know, trying to stay out of, out of his uh, view. And at the end of class, we were kind of trying to get out quickly. And I remember he called, Kale, come over here. I was like, oh boy, here we go. Remember saying bye to my classmates. I will, I will take this class next semester with a different professor. And I walked up to his desk and he asked, are you feeling better? Everything okay? And I was like, wait a minute. Everything, am I dreaming here? Uh, and I remember thinking in that moment, maybe I've got this guy all wrong. I, I thought one thing about him, and maybe I've been misreading the situation entirely. And though he was still fairly short the rest of the semester, that one interaction changed how I viewed everything. And I think sometimes we do the same thing with the Bible. See, I was raised in church, and I had the gift of my parents raising me in God's Word, of, of knowing it fairly well. And I remember growing up thinking now, you know, God in the Old Testament, God is angry. God is upset. Something ha- has happened, and he's not slow to anger here. He's quick to anger. He's slow to forgiveness. If you mess up, um, you, you might be done just in an instance. And I remember thinking, man, there are sure are a lot of laws in the Old Testament. God is, is all about the rules. He's all about doing the right thing all the time. I remember trying to read the Bible through a number of times, always getting stuck in Leviticus because it's just a law after another law after another law. And you get it. It's hard. But then you'd go to the New Testament and you would read about Jesus. And you would say, now, Jesus, that, that I can spend some time with. Jesus is someone worth following. Jesus is inspiring. He's loving. And he's the kind of a person that wants the little children to come to him. And, and you would have this difficult time. How do I reconcile the God of the Old Testament and Jesus? How do I put those two together? We think that God is harsh here, but he's loving in the New Testament. And what we realize is that God never changed. And God and Jesus are one in the same. And and as followers of Christ, when we read about Jesus, Jesus informs how we read the Old Testament. We read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, knowing that God has always been this way. And that if Jesus is like that, then so is God. If Jesus is loving and kind and full of mercy and grace, then so is God. And God was always that way. If there was a mistake, it was our mistake. If there was a misreading, it was ours, not his. God is one. And so we read the book of Jonah, and Jonah reveals to us that God has always been forgiving. God has always been full of grace and mercy. And we missed it. Jesus pushes it even further. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is asked by Peter, how much should I forgive a brother or sister who wrongs me? And it's a good question that we might think is silly because Peter says, should I forgive even up to seven times? And I kind of think that that's silly the way we read it. But it's a really good question from Peter because seven is a perfect number. Should I forgive them a perfect amount of time? And, and let's be honest, if someone for, wrongs us in the same way, it's not going to take seven times for us to quit forgiving them. It's going to take about two. You keep doing the same thing, you need to learn to stop doing this to me. But he says, even seven times? 
And, and I love how Jesus responds. He gives two responses. And the first is, is a little bit of a play on words. You think seven is perfect? Well, what about 70 times seven? Or your version may say, what about 77 times? And Jesus is essentially saying there is no limit. It's, it's an infinite amount. And then he also tells a story. Jesus loves to respond with a story. And he gives this story that a king is trying to settle his debts. And he has a servant that owes him 10,000 bags of gold, which is the equivalent of about 20 years worth of work. He calls the servant in and he says, it's time to repay your debt. Only the servant, of course, cannot pay it. And he knows that a punishment is coming, so he falls on his knees and he asks for patience and understanding. And to his surprise, not only does the king offer patience and understanding, the king decides to cancel his debt. Now imagine if you had something that you were going to pay on for 20 years and let's say the lender just decided to cancel your debt. Imagine it was your home that you, you signed up to pay on for decades and the lender said, you know what, we're just going to clear the debt. I mean, how far would they hear the celebration? I mean, the whoops and hollers, like you would hear it throughout the city, right? That's, we would, that's who we would all be. This servant has that great of a debt canceled. Instead of celebrating, he walks out of the throne room and he calls on another servant who owes him money. Now, this other servant owes him about 100 pieces of silver, which is about 100 days wages. This is, this is no laughing matter either. It's not nearly as much, but it's a lot of money. It's a third of a year's worth of work. He calls on him and he says, it's time for you to pay my debt. The way that Jesus sets the story up is masterful because you almost think that he's going to go and cancel the debt. That's what was just done for him, but he doesn't do that. He says, it's time to pay your debt. Well, the servant gives him the same spiel. I, I can't pay it. I ask for your patience and your understanding. Rather than giving it to him, he has the, the fellow servant thrown in jail. It's, with, it's within his rights. He's owed a debt that cannot pay. He is allowed to do this. There are other servants around who have seen what's happened, and, and the word gets back to the king, and he's not pleased. In fact, he's quite upset with the servant. He says, you have been forgiven a great deal. You too should be forgiving. And Jesus leaves the scene by saying, you have been forgiven by your heavenly father, so you too should forgive your brother and sister. See, the story and the lesson that Jesus gives are easy to understand. When you've been forgiven a great deal, you should forgive your brother and sisters. One man is forgiven much, but he won't forgive little. Easy to understand, hard to live out. See, church, here's the deal. We've been forgiven much. We have been forgiven much. We're all like Jonah. We're all like the servant. But we had a debt. We had rebelled. We had been disobedient. We had a debt that we couldn't pay a great debt that God decided to cancel on our behalf. See, church, when you engaged in sin, when you were disobedient, when we were rebellious, God is a holy God that cannot be with sin. He cannot be around that. There was nothing we could do. There was nothing we could do to bridge the gap. We sinned. We moved away from God. He didn't move from us. We couldn't do anything about it. So God himself left the throne room on high, and he came down, he climbed up on a cross so that he could be with you. The debt that was ours, he paid with his own life. We've been forgiven much. The call from Jesus is, won't you forgive little? 
See, church, this is why having an attitude of self-righteousness can be so dangerous. To think that you don't need forgiveness. To think that you don't have any need for grace or mercy. So what the Bible tells us is that we all have that need. No, there is nothing any one of us could do to bridge the gap between ourselves and God. He alone could do that. And this should feed into our thankfulness that he did it. We should be like the servant who's had a 20-year debt canceled. We should be that thankful. People around us should know. Why are you so happy? Why is there so much joy? Because I was dead and now I am alive. Because I was without God and now I am with God. This should be something that should be first on our lips. And it should lead us to having a radical spirit of forgiveness for other people. Overflowing grace and mercy. Because we know what we've been given. We know the grace that we've received. The mercy and the forgiveness that wasn't worth, that we did not earn. And so we should be ones that give it to him as well. But church, if we're honest, we're not very good at this. It's easy to know. It's easy to say it's hard to put into action. We easily and readily claim God's love for ourselves, but we're not great at giving it. And if you want proof of this, just go out on the freeway. <laughs> we're vindictive. We hold grudges. If someone cuts us off, well, then we're going to speed around them. We're going to break in front of them. They honked first, so I'll honk back at them. And I remember I look over at Savannah and it's like, he started it. <laughs> he did it first. We resort to the arguments of children rather than living like Christ, understanding the gift that we've been given and letting that lead into our lives. In church, it has to start small and small everyday ways. Because see, there, are, there is opportunity for you every day to offer forgiveness to other people, to not respond in ways that maybe they deserve it, to hold on to petty differences, to wait until they earn back your love or respect. Church, these small everyday moments are training. You cannot do the big moments when they come if you can't do the small ones. The story at the front end of the Amish community is a story of a big moment of forgiveness. But it started with small moments. It started with living it out every single day. And church, the big moments in your life are coming. When people will hurt you, whether on purpose or by accident. And the question is, will you be able to forgive? There will be times that people ask for your forgiveness, and there will be times that they don't even think to ask for it. Will you be the kind of person to forgive? See, we were all moved by a moment of forgiveness this week. We watched the trial play out for Botham, and this week there was the sentencing, and we saw the moment of forgiveness when his brother took the stand. We saw the moment that he offered his forgiveness and his love. And I'm thankful that for his example, because everyone has seen it. Everyone has seen that gospel lived out of him knowing that the forgiveness that he's experienced. And so who is he to withhold it for anyone else? And I'm thankful for that example. But I'm moved by the moment that he says, can I get up and give her a hug? Because at that point, it's just words. And whether he believes it or not, or hope, he's just hoping himself into a forgiving person, we don't know. But when he asks, can I give her a hug? He's putting his forgiveness, he's putting his words into action. Amen. That example is moving because we see his faith come to life. Amen. And church, this is who we are called to be. We are called to be people who put our faith into action. That when we've been given a second chance, 
we act on it. That we understand the forgiveness and the gift that we've been given. And so we don't hold it back from anyone else. Church, don't leave this room today without understanding that you have been forgiven a great deal. What Jesus Christ did for you, you could never do for yourself. You think it would be great to have a great debt canceled? Your very death was canceled on the cross. Jesus Christ went up and took what was yours so that you had a place with him forever. And for that, we should be shouting from the rooftops. It should be the first thing on our lips. And there may be some in here today that have never accepted this free gift of forgiveness. And we want to invite you to accept that today. Jesus Christ has invited you into his family. He wants to give you the gift of forgiveness. And our baptistry is ready and it is open. Won't you take that on today? Give up your life to give, to take on his life, to take a place with him. Because his forgiveness is free, his grace and mercy are for you. Our shepherds and their wives will be around the room if there's any way we can pray for you today. We want to walk with you through that which life gives you. If there's anything we can do for you, won't you come while we stand and sing?